0: Please turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 8. Exodus 8, 1 to 32, for the reading of God's Word in a moment. Thus saith the Lord, meant authority, and it was spoken from the King James Version Bible in the church of my youth. The English Standard Version reads similarly to it, thus says the Lord. You'll find it in our very first verse today and also in our 20th verse. The middle miracle in chapter 8 records less details, Uh uh-oh, Somebody's trying to find the Bible. I don't blame you. Let's give you a second to find it there. It's talking back to us. There'll be three miracles today. The middle one actually constitutes the third miracle. So we're looking at miracle two, three, and four. We look at miracle number one of ten last week, or sign, plague, wonder. It could use any different word for it there, depending on what you want to emphasize. But the middle miracle in chapter eight is it's constricted in how much language we get about it. It doesn't mean the events any shorter, it means that Moses, as the author, chose to write a few less verses, a few less sentences about that miracle. I'll be looking and examining three different sign plagues today and to see what those signs convey to us based on what was going on back then about 3,500 years ago. But to kind of hang it on it, those four words, Thus says the Lord, Will help us navigate the text today and give us a kind of a rudder to go back to. But what I'm wanting to argue is that you should prefer, prefer sayings of the Lord, prefer sayings to signs. That you should desire the sayings of the Lord, which you now have in holy writ and scripture, to signs because of sin because of counsel, and because of commands. And so if you want to follow along with the text today, there's three things that I think that you can catch on to quite quickly, is that you should prefer sayings to signs because of sin, counsel, and commands. So speaking of thus, saith the Lord, let's hear the the word of the Lord now from Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 to 32. I'll read it straight through, but I want to note for you where I think the best place to to break the text down for discussion around those three points are, uh, and that is after verse 15, it's the first sign mentioned here, and then after verse 19, and then the last section, of course, ends at verse 32. So we have a large section describing this second plague, the plague of frogs, a smaller section describing the third plague, the plague of gnats, and then a little bit longer section again describing the fourth plague, the plague of Fly. So hear hear the word of the Lord now. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house, and into your bedroom, and on your bed, and into the houses of your servants and and your people, and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you, and on your people, and on your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, "'Say to Aaron, "'Stretch out your hand with your staff "'over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, "'and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt.' "'So Aaron stretched out his hand "'over the waters of Egypt, "'and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. "'But the magicians did the same by their secret arts "'and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. "'Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, "'Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs "'from me and from my people, "'and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord.' "'Moses said to Pharaoh, "'Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you "'and for your servants and for your people, that the, frogs, "'that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile.' "'And he said, "'Tomorrow,' Moses said, "'Be it as you say, "'so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. "'The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. "'They shall be left only in the Nile.' So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast." Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you. And on your servants and your people, and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into, the, into his servants' houses. Throughout the land, all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will, tell, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. And Moses said, Behold, I am going out. From you, And I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. May God bless the reading of his word and minister grace unto those who hear lengthy section of scripture, Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 through 32. So, arguing today that you should prefer sayings to signs because of the pervasiveness of sin, the prolificness of wise counsel, and because of the preciseness of God's commands. So, in three words, sin, counsel, commands. Let's look at the first one, the pervasiveness of sin. God can do anything Sign he wants. But you should be apprised that Satan can do signs too. While Satan cannot do as many signs as God can, the Bible explains to us instance after instance where wicked people are empowered by Satan and fallen angels to do signs that counterfeit true signs from God. We see that in Revelation, we see it in Exodus chapter 8. God can do any sign, but God does every sign for a purpose. And every sign that he does for his purpose is a purpose that is beyond simply our pleasure. In fact, in our verse of unison reading today from the New Testament, we read about how part of our salvation is that we suffer with Christ. It's not just that we have pleasure. Now certainly, God gives us pleasure, but my point in this is saying that God's purpose in the signs that he does is not simply to give us pleasure. It's to bring Him glory. In Jesus' day, the, Pharaohs, the Pharisees were like Pharaoh, and they were like Pharaoh in that they asked for a sign. The Jews asked Jesus, what sign do you show us for the zeal that you have for the Lord's house, for wanting corporate worship done as God prescribed, for kicking over the money-changing tables, for say? Jesus answered their demand for a sign, and this is recorded in John 2, in a very interesting way. Knowing that it took 46 years to rebuild the temple when the Jews returned from Babylonian exile, Jesus quipped to them, destroy it, destroy the temple, I'll build it again in three days. Now, of course, he was talking about the temple of his body, and the Pharisees, who weren't you see, couldn't put all that together. And they said, there's no way. It took us 46 years to build this temple. How in the world are you going to rebuild it in three days? And I think that is a thought and a text worth looking at later in the sermon today. So we'll just put a pin in that for now. A different gospel than John, that is the gospel of Luke, records Jesus saying to larger and larger crowds of people gathering around him that were wanting to see more and more signs, he said to them, it's an evil generation... Because it seeks for a sign. Luke chapter 11, verse 29. It seeks for a sign. But Jesus continued to teach them, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. The men of Nineveh will rise up with this generation and condemn this generation for the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In Luke 11, in the crowds, a woman praised Jesus in a very Roman Catholic sort of way. What she did was she praised his mother that birthed and nursed him. And Jesus corrected her very quickly and wouldn't let such Roman Catholic mariology stand. He said, rather, he said, than praising the mom that birthed me, blessed are those who hear the word, that is, the Lord saying, thus saith the Lord, who hear the word of God and keeps it, that is, doing the thus saith the Lord. So he turned the sign demand over. He turned the worship of man over and said, Blessed are those who hear the word, the sayings, and keep them or do them. So like road signs, signs that have been done by God are meant to point to and to confirm what the word of God says, which is the actual road map. tells us where we should go. So we need to be very careful about insisting on God to do a new, a fresh Sign when God speaks, He means to convey something to us that we are actually responsible for. That's the reason we give such attention to word-based ministry in the church. It's the reason why we we sing Scripture, sing the Word. It's the reason why we pray the Scriptures, we pray the Word, and it's the reason why I preach the Word. We see the Word through the ordinances, which are to be understood as church ordinances. They're they're not just for a small group over here, a small group over there. We're supposed to do the Lord's Supper together. We're supposed to experience baptisms together. These are church ordinances rightly understood. And so we are to seek to worship God's way, and our worship should be predicated on the very Word of God itself. And so when we come together, we want to be word-saturated because blessed are those who hear the Word and keep it. Now, this may seem like an odd way to lean into this first point of the pervasiveness of sin should help us to prefer sayings over signs, but I don't think it's such a stretch. Let me try to explain. The sign from God to Pharaoh is meant to confirm the primary of what God says. God speaks, and it is. Look at chapter 8, verse 1, if you have your Bible open. Exodus 8, 1 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go unto Pharaoh and say to him, Thus saith the Lord. Thus says the Lord. I said it, and it is. Let my people go that they may serve me. It's a very simple command that he gives to Pharaoh. Let my people go, intimating that they are his people and not Pharaoh's, intimating that God is the creator, that he has claim on everyone, and that his claim on everyone extends as far as does our sinful behaviors. As pervasive as is our sin, as is pervasive as God's sovereignty to punish our sin. And these plagues will extend to every animistic worship realm, every every realm in society, every realm, every piece, rather, of society. The punishment on people from God will extend all the way. Now, we as believers know that God's punishment that extends as far as the curse is found has been removed from us because that punishment has been put on Christ Jesus himself. So we have salvation because Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us. And that is a glorious truth. But that glorious truth is virtually meaningless until we come to the point in our lives where we realize that we are worthy of being punished the same way as the Egyptians. Understanding the riches of glory in the gospel... It means that first we understand how much we've broken God's law and how much we deserve punishment for the same kinds of sins that Pharaoh and his followers committed 3,500 years ago. It starts with that. And I know we say this sort of thing Sunday after Sunday, but it's because it bears repeating. This sort of thing is easy for us to forget. We have sinned, and Christ has become our Savior. Pharaoh did not understand. Yahweh, he did not understand his ways. The Lord made his command very clear. Let my people go, that they may serve. The Hebrew word there also means worship. That they may worship me, that they may serve me. But if you don't let them go, if you sin, if you rebel against me, I have claim over you too, you should know this is what's going to happen. Now, it's thought that there was about a week between each of these plagues. So if there are 10 plagues, about 10, 11 weeks. And we base that on the very last verse of chapter 7 in your English print Bible, seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. That is with the very first plague, the plague of blood, where the Nile turned into blood and there was blood everywhere and they had to find water in weird places. It's a very difficult plague. And so... Maybe that is an example of the length of time that's to be expected between each plague. Differently, the, the biblical authors don't have to restate that there was seven days between each of the plagues for that to be what's intimated by there being seven days between the first and the second plague. I just think that might help us to get a sense of the temporality of the time frame of each of these plagues prospectively. Of course, this don't know for sure, but that's kind of the distance between most of the plagues, perhaps we think. Now, so if it took about three weeks or more... But for these plagues to come to pass, we see this first one is the utter rebellion of Pharaoh against God's word. And God performing a sign to confirm his word is actually true. Thus saith the Lord, let my people go worship. They're my people and they need to worship. Two parts, one command. And Pharaoh has no intention of doing this until he needs a respite from his consequences. And then he'll say what he needs to say. And like any tyrant, he will go back on his word whenever it suits him. And that's exactly what happens here. But there's more going on here than than just Pharaoh's rebellion. It is a paradigm for the rebellion of all creation. In fact, Exodus 115 is retelling God's name to people who had long since forgotten what God's name was. The pervasiveness of forgetting about God leads to the pervasiveness of sin and these plagues which are reversals of creation in order to get our attention. In Exodus 8, 2, If you refuse to let my people worship me my way, I will plague your country with frogs. The Nile will swarm, Exodus chapter 8, 8, verse 3, with frogs. And they'll be in your bedrooms and your kitchens. Okay, so why frogs in the bedrooms and kitchens? What's being communicated here? In brief, it's about people's innate desire to worship gods as themselves, but to reject the one true God. Frogs were revered by Egyptians. There's recordings in history of Egyptians in this era wearing amulets that had little frog heads on it, and these were supposed to protect them against forces. They revered frogs. They thought that frogs held the crocodiles at bay in the Nile. The Nile was life-giving for the Egyptians, and they had deities associated with the Nile. And the deity for the frogs is thought to be one of fertility. God says, you want all this fertility, all of this recreation, and the appetites of the flesh— filled in the bedroom and in the kitchen, without listening to me, then the very thing you want will turn into a curse. And that's what happens in life. The appetites that God gives us can be a blessing. They're meant to be a blessing. But if we rebel against what God says, if we refuse to listen to what God clearly says, then the very appetites that are meant for our good pleasure and for worship, they become a curse to us. They become an albatross because they're misappropriated. And boy, don't we see that everywhere in society today. Sadly, we see it too often in the church. We need to be the people that appropriates the appetites rightly. And we do it by studying, thus says the Lord. Ever heard of having too much of a good thing? It's true, you can. That's what's going on with these frogs. These frogs were misplaced in the lives of the people, oddly enough. And now they're outside the Nile and they're everywhere. And they're going to wind up in stinking heaps because they're afraid to destroy the frogs because they've worshipped the frogs. And so just the whole place stinks. It just stinks. And that's what sin does. It stinks to the high heavens. These frogs are communicating so much about the pervasiveness of sin and how we should draw close to this wonderful God, this one true God in what he says... Because he is the one true God that can deliver us from what we've done. Tim Chester was musing about this passage and wrote this. I think it's very helpful. He said, in one sense, Pharaoh was ahead of his time. He was a thoroughly postmodern man. He was not an atheist. He believed in a God. In fact, he believed in many gods. Sun gods, river gods, harvest gods. Pharaoh himself was seen as a son of the gods. His issue was not, there is not God. His issue was, why should I listen to your God when I've got so many gods of my own? Instructive now, isn't it? That might hit you right where you are today. It's fine for you. What about me? As far as Pharaoh is concerned, the Lord is simply a localized deity in Goshen. Why should he lose three days' labor at the request of one God among so many gods? Pharaoh was not offended by the Israelites having their own God, choosing their own religion, or developing their own spirituality. What he took offense at was the suggestion that the God of Israel might have a claim on him. Don't you impose your beliefs on me, Pharaoh was essentially saying. In the same way, the reaction of our culture to the claims of Jesus, especially his claim to be unique, is, Who is the Lord Jesus that I should obey him? Some replace the objective reality of God with a subjective choice. These plagues are God's answer to this way of thinking. God is declaring that He is the only true God and the only relevant God. He is the only God who is worth obeying. Through the plagues, God is saying, there's no one like the Lord our God, Exodus chapter 8, verse 10. God is going head-to-head with Pharaoh and Egypt's gods. It's God versus gods with a little g. And in the plagues, the Lord brought judgment on their gods. Numbers chapter 33, verse 4 tells us this explicitly. So the nine plagues on the front end systematically underline Egypt's pluralistic claims. They're a lecture against religious pluralism, which is the belief that all religions are valid. And personal autonomy, which is the belief that I have the right to live how I want to live, however I'd like. It's like a curriculum with ten unforgettable lessons in these plagues. And the message is clear. There is no one like our God. There is only one God. Thus saith the Lord. Matters. Before we move past this first point of the pervasiveness of our sin, I want to take just a moment to do a word study with you. It's a word study on the word swarm. Look at Exodus chapter 8, verse 3. It says, The Nile River shall swarm with frogs. Now, there is a mentioning of swarm about the flies. In the third point of this sermon, that is a different Hebrew word, although it's also translated "swarm." It has to do with those flies. This swarming has a bit more to do with fertility. In fact, the only other time in Exodus that this particular Hebrew word is used, where here used, "the Nile shall swarm with frogs," is in the first chapter of Exodus, verse seven. And there, this word "sharatz" is used to describe the swarming or the increasing or the multiplication in population. "...of the Israelites while living in Goshen, part of Egypt, for centuries since Jacob's sons first started living there due to a famine." So the use of this Hebrew word, shirats, describes the swarming of the frogs in this plague. It describes the swarming or the the fertility of the Israelites in the first chapter of Exodus. You may recall what happened to the Israelites because of this high birth rate. You remember what Pharaoh did? They were worried about the population increase because there was this unstoppable multiplication. And so he actually commanded partial birth abortion or infanticide, depending on how it happened, throw the babies into the Nile, the boys, and kill them. And I was talking to one of our members here about the sermon after church last Sunday, which I always encourage us to do, is to let the word reverberate in the church. And so in service to that, I mentioned that here. Mark French and I were talking, and he said it was as if this was punishing them for sacrificing the, the boys, giving the blood of the boys to the gods of the Nile. Now there's bloodletting in the Nile. The gods are bleeding out, and the river's all bloody. And he mentioned a good Christ-centered approach in that we can look to the Son, not the sons, but the Son, who was bled out on the cross to conquer Satan, and to give us salvation. And so if you think of it that way, and you think about this high birth rate in Exodus 1 as being a precursor to Pharaoh wickedly demanding the destruction of the Hebrew boys, you see that even though God allowed that for a time, he keeps record of wrongs and he is punishing that with the plagues. We see this word swarm in Genesis, actually. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, when God spoke creation into being, And this is instructive, too, because thus says the Lord is reducible to, and God says. And God says, let the waters swarm with swarms. A synonym would be teeming or swarming or uh, unstoppable, multiplication, multiplying. Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse. Of the heavens. So God created the sea, great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So the goodness of creation, God speaking, thus saith the Lord, and creation happening, has been frustrated because of humanity's sin and rebellion against God. And so creation, so good spoken into existence, now frustrated. And we read about that in Genesis chapter 3. Very early on, sin pervasively enters into... The pervasiveness of sin enters into our experience through our first parents, Adam and Eve. And you see it with with Cain and Abel, and you see it all the way through Genesis. Noah's Ark, and you see it in the life of Abraham. And we've talked about the Tower of Babel, and uh, Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob's sons, and Joseph, and how they got to Egypt, all the way down the line. But this theme of recreation emerges in the Bible very early also. So through looking at creation now fallen and the pervasiveness of sin, we see that God is intent on punishing sin as far as the curse is found and providing recreation to whomever will receive it. And so we read in the New Testament, to all who believe in him, who receive him, he gives rights, rights to become his sons, his children, grafted in, becoming a part of God's family, adopted into the Family of God, So there is some mileage to get out of this word swarm with regard to the pervasiveness of sin because of how we have rebelled against the created order, thus saith the Lord. Exodus 8.8, 8, Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead for the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Plead for the Lord, intercede for me. He's asking the man of God to intercede for him. This is instructive because it's, the word for plead is later translated in this very chapter as pray. It's the same Hebrew word. Pharaoh asks Moses to pray for him. Does that mean Pharaoh is a follower of God? Does that mean Pharaoh's eternal destiny is to be with God? You know better, don't you? I mean, Exodus says again and again that Pharaoh does not spend eternity. With God, he's in utter rebellion against God. So why does he ask for prayer, pleading? You might say special pleading. Why does he ask for it? Well, it's because he's hurting. He's in the same fallen world that we're in. He wants a respite. He's seen God flex his proverbial muscles, and he wants relief. Differently, though, not just why does he ask for it, but how does it communicate to us that he asked for it? Pharaoh looks to the man of God and asks for prayer. We need to understand today that as noble as it is to ask a man or a woman of God for prayer, that that is not the same thing as you having a personal relationship with your Creator. There is no assurance of salvation for you because you've asked at some point in your life for somebody that you thought was spiritual to pray for you. This is not a a grandchildren type of existence in God's church, but children, you need to talk to God. You have a great high priest that intercedes for you in Christ. You need to call upon the Lord and be saved. And then ask for prayer from every godly man and woman that you want to. But do not depend on the prayers of another for your salvation. You need to go to the Lord, and you need to plead with the Lord. And you don't just need to plead with the Lord, but your prayers need to move beyond pleading, as in prayers of petition. We find instruction in the Bible about how we are to pray prayers of praise. God, you're so good. I thank you for it. God, I praise you because of your greatness. I praise you because of your mercy. These are not asking. It's not me asking God to do something for me. It's me acknowledging in worshipful prayer, as Scripture instructs us to do, you are God, I am not, and I praise you for it. And then also, confession of sin. God, I confess that I, w- I-, I looked at something I shouldn't have looked at this week. I, I-, I said something I shouldn't have said. My attitude is bitter. I-, I thought I'd long since be over this particular proclivity to sin, but it keeps creeping back in. I confess it. Help me, God. Thank you for helping me. And then we get to petitions. And it's the old Acts model of prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, which is sort of a synonym for for petition. Pharaoh only knows one kind of prayer. It's petition. And he really doesn't know prayer at all. He just looks at leveraging the man of God to get a respite. There's a kind of respite seeking that doesn't cut to the joint and marrow of our sin and cry out for salvation. Listen to me, unbeliever, today. You need more than some loose conversation with somebody else that you think is close to God. God is close to you. His desire is to be close to you. And you must call upon Him to be saved and then continue to call upon Him in adoration, and confession of sin, thanksgiving, and in petition. But do it from a position of faith, not from a position of borrowing from someone else's. Let this faith become yours, unbeliever. Receive the gospel of Jesus Christ today in very simple terms. You can't save yourself. He died to save you. Receive his free gospel. And you're in. You're in. It, it's not that you're in once we baptize you or you're in the first time you take the Lord's Supper. You're in right now. Just receive them. Now, you need to do those things. That's, that's signs that matter. that really do matter. The ordinances of the church matter. These matter. But you being in simply begins with your expressed personal faith in Christ that he put in you to begin with. The pervasiveness of sin means that you need to ask for a relationship today. Don't wait as if time is on your side. Today is the day of salvation. Call upon the Lord today and tell somebody if you have. Tell one of us that you had. Tell somebody in your pew now. Tell somebody in the foyer after church. Tell us early and often. If you've chosen to follow Christ, we want to walk you through what it looks like to be discipled as a follower of Christ. More can be said about this first point, but after this first one, let's now look at the second one. It's shorter amounts of verses. It's verses 16 through 19. The prolificness of wise counsel should draw you to want to hear the sayings of the Lord more than demanding signs from the Lord. It's short enough, we can just read them again. Look at 16, 17, 18, and 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So we move from the plague of the frogs to the plague of the gnats. Just because the, shorter, the story shorter here doesn't mean that the events were shorter. We're getting this abridged update. And we're moving not only from the second to the third plague, but we're moving from waterway plagues to land plagues with what's now gnats, and then it's going to be flies. These might have been like uh, lice or fleas, or sand flies. We're just going to call them gnats. Look at 8.16. Thus says the Lord, it is similar to the refrain there, Then the Lord said to Moses. So it holds. The Lord said to Moses, and they did so. But Pharaoh would not do so, and would not listen to the spoken word of the Lord, to the thus saith the Lord, just as the Lord had predicted. Up until this point, the magicians have been able to match Aaron's sign for sign. Remember that Satan can induce signs also. However, the counterfeit signs, Satan's counterfeiting God signs, at best punish the people the worst. Create, the ability for them to match a bloodletting of the river gods is not a net win for Pharaoh's servants, these magicians. The ability to match the multiplication of frogs, however that was accomplished, is not a net win for Pharaoh's servants. One Bible commentator said it like this. said, put it in modern terms and to use a sports analogy, it's, it's like in basketball when you score, a, you score on the wrong goal. You ever seen somebody do, off like, do that? There's a tip off and they rush down to the wrong goal and they score and everybody's yelling, at them, don't score on that goal. That's for the other team. It's, it's like that. It's, it's like the magicians in Plagues 1 and 2 were scoring baskets on the wrong goal. This and the frogs were counterfeited by the magicians, and now they can't even keep up. But, but, in service to this second point, consider this. Wise counsel can come from odd places. Wise counsel can come from odd places. The magicians convey to Pharaoh that this is what? This is the finger of God the finger of God. Now, God's not like us, but we are like God in that we bear his image, even if it's marred, even if it's frustrated by sin. We still resemble God in some ways, and God communicates to us using human language to help us understand more about him because we can understand human features, hands, fingers, mouths, tongues, speaking, God doesn't have to have a mouth to speak or a hand to write with a finger. God communicates. He speaks, and it is. This is what's being conveyed with human language, and this is good. God's speaking is evidenced in a book filled with with thus saith the Lord, with thus says the Lord. That's in your Bible. It's a helpful way to look at it. Matthew Newkirk wrote it like this. He said, These chapters emphasize that the driving force behind the judgment of the plagues is the Word of God. Repeatedly, we see phrases like, The Lord said to Moses, or As the Lord has said, or spoken, or As the Lord commands, or Thus says the Lord, which we're emphasizing today. Just as God's Word was the primary means by which He created the world, so is His Word the primary means by which He saves His people through judgment against Egypt. Similarly, the Son of God came to earth as the Word of God, John chapter 1, verse 1, and through Him God again brought salvation through judgment. However, in the case of Jesus, He as the Son and Word of God took God's judgment upon Himself in order to bring salvation to His people. Wonderful truth about, thus saith the Lord, about the word of God being emphasized in these chapters and in chapter 8. There's no shortage of wise counsel pointing us to the existence of God. Creation itself points to a creator. Even the magicians say when they've been bested, this, this, is, this is the finger of God. This is God's word. One commentator said that the plagues are like a 10-game series sweep by God against man's best magicians. Another said these, as I said, scored in the wrong basket. This is a turning point in the plagues. They can't keep up anymore. This is the finger of God. In Luke chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus reasons using this language, the finger of God. Jesus and the apostles clearly did signs to confirm what this word, the word of the Lord, says to us. This is now our thus saith the Lord, that is the Scriptures. And even hot on the heels of Jesus doing some signs people realized that Satan does signs too. And so they sought to discredit Jesus' signs by crediting Jesus' signs to demons. This is Luke chapter 11. I'll just, just, let me just read a section to you. Luke eleven fourteen 14 to 23. It says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Belzebul, Beelze- the prince of demons. While others To test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Belzebub. And if I cast out demons by Belzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. Apparently this was going on. Verse 20, but this is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, an echo of Exodus 8. An echo of the wise counsel, albeit coming from an ungodly source, the magicians. But this is, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. These signs are evidence of the kingdom of God coming in the incarnate, person of Christ. And it says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one's stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. And then there's this last phrase, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Hold that up for just a second. Just that verse right there. Just think about that in light of this work in Christ being the very finger of God. Jesus heals a troubled man. They accuse him of being demonic himself. They kept seeking more signs and more signs from heaven, even though they were attributing the signs that were coming to heaven to hell. So demonstrating that he was truly the Lord, spoken of in Exodus, Jesus addresses their arguments, debunking their logic. He confronts them with words and speaks of himself as the kingdom of God come upon them because these signs are by the very finger of God. It's like what was recognized that day 1,500 years earlier in Pharaoh's court. This sign of gnats on everything is by God's powerful, mighty hand. It's by His finger, or just simply by God. And Jesus gives us a little instruction that helps us apply our second point, the prolificness of wise counsel about this one true God. It even comes from odd places like these magicians. And certainly the pages of Scripture and church history are replete with the prolificness of wise counsel that this is the one true God. Differently, we are without excuse. Samely, Luke 11:23 23 says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. So to end the second point, let me ask you a couple of very brief questions. Are you with the Lord? Are you gathering with the Lord? These are not questions to trap you. These are questions to get you to think. Are you operating with the Lord? Are you gathering in to the Lord's church with the Lord? Are you wanting to work with the Lord, to use the energy from Him so powerfully at work within you to be about this in gathering? What we find in our last section of Scripture today is that God precisely distinguishes between those who are gathering with Him and those who are not. So let's look at our third and final section. In these verses, we see the precision of God's commands should draw us to prefer His sayings to asking for more signs. God's commands are precise. They're precise. We see this in verses 20 to 32 of Exodus 8. Now, we won't reread the whole section. It's a bit long, and we've already read it once, but I just want to point out a few things, beginning with verse 20 itself. So if you have your print Bible open, maybe look at that, or they perhaps can put it up. The text says, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve or worship me, or else... I can I can make flies come upon you. And I grew up in southeast Missouri, and in southeast Missouri there was low land that would fill up with water, and sometimes they would dam up that water in order to make gates, levee gates in order to grow rice, because rice grows well in very wet, saturated fields. And so I've worked with rice levee gates and shoveled heavy mud and tried to get those levee gates just right and whatnot for the farmers that I worked for in southeast Missouri. And here's what I can tell you. In terrain like that, mosquitoes amass. I remember as a young boy playing Little League Baseball, I remember going to the field and, and noticing how many families had this little aerosol spray can with OFF on the outside of it off. Now, if you don't know what off is because you didn't grow up where the mosquitoes were everywhere... Let me just tell you, off is literally designed to keep off the mosquitoes off your body. I can tell you, it, if it works, it doesn't work forever because we would reapply about every other inning, and so you would be this this blend of, of sweat and off all over your uniform playing baseball. If you're wondering what's wrong with me, I'm sure that has something to do with it. And an off could not keep off the the mosquitoes, the flies, because... Of just how many of them there were, and I was, you know, I'm so thankful God called me to Southern Indiana, where, regardless of the allergies, at least I don't need off. Uh, you don't need them things around here, but I, I love where I grew up too, uh, a little bit tongue in cheek. But let me just say that these little bitty flies can cause big problems. I love how Charles Spurgeon said it, as quoted by preacher Philip Ryken. Listen, it's very helpful. In the end, Pharaoh was defeated by mighty forces like darkness and death. But long before the sky turned black over Egypt and the angel of death snatched his firstborn son, it was the little things that got to Pharaoh. Little things like gnats and flies. One of the wonders of the Exodus is that God used tiny insects to demonstrate his power over Pharaoh and his gods. This miracle led Charles Spurgeon to observe, when it pleases God by his judgments to humble men, he is never at a loss for means, for he can use lions or lice, famines or flies. In the armory of God, there are weapons of every kind, from the stars in their courses down to the caterpillars in their host's the late Charles Spurgeon. They say the last of the Puritans. In his sermon from the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Tabernacle Pulpit, take away the frogs. Take away the frogs. Take away the gnats. Take away the flies. God precisely punishes Pharaoh's people with this plague, but spares the land where his people dwell. He spares them from the flies. But why this division? You may notice that if you look at your Bible in verse 22, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. This is quite a statement, this little prepositional phrase on the end, in the midst of the earth. In other words, He's not some distant God. He's not the God of the deists. We don't need to create the enlightenment errors of thinking that God's way out there and we can't really know No God is personal. He is in the earth and the God of the Hebrews is the God of the Christians. This is a God that's in the midst of the earth. This is the Lord. And He must be reckoned with. He lays claim on every single human being. Whether you follow Him or not is not the issue. He lays claim on all of you and He will judge you Based on the pervasiveness of your sin, he will judge you in Christ or he will judge you on the merits. You want to be judged in Christ. Come to Christ. Pharaoh pled for relief. I pray that you would only get relief when you come to Christ. Come to Christ. Receive Christ. Don't ask for a respite, ask for a relationship. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. He is such a precise Savior, He's so precise. He's able to divide exactly where the plagues go and don't go in Egypt. He didn't let them go to Goshen. That's where all the Israelites dwelt. They were shepherds. They were lower class citizens. I weren't citizens at all, but they're lower class slaves in Egypt. That was a protected land, but everybody else had all of these flies. Tomorrow repeats again here. But this time, it's not Pharaoh choosing the day. It's the Lord choosing the day. Space is tightening in on Pharaoh. His rebellion relief cycle will not indefinitely endure. The division between God's people and not God's people is for the purpose of all folks everywhere, A, knowing that the Lord is God, and B, knowing that he is at work in the midst of the earth. And he's still at work in the midst of the earth right now. Let's ask you a question whether you're younger, older, or in the middle of life. Let me ask you a question. Do you live your life as if God is in the midst right here? And if not, how about today? Be the day that you lean into the fact that God is in the midst of the earth right here. We don't know that because we demand another sign from heaven. We know that because of the sayings of the Lord. There's so much evidence, the way he punishes sin, the way we receive counsel, even from odd places, about this one true God. There's no shortage of godly counsel on the earth today. Thank God the church is still here. There are pulpits that are vibrantly preaching, thus saith the Lord today, across this land and other countries around the world. And we thank God for that, don't we? We pray for those pulpits. We pray for those churches This is a collaboration, it is not a competition. It's why we seek to pray for other churches that they might be found faithful and that thus they at the Lord may ring true to every single hearer in every single church on every Lord's Day. God is a precise God. And His precision is yet another reason why we need to prefer His sayings to asking for more signs. This one true God is precise about how He wants to be worshiped. Look at verse 27. Verse 27 says, we must go worship. There's four little words there. As he tells us. I want you to think about that for a moment. As he tells us. What we learn here is a scriptural theme. That God prescribes how he wants to be worshipped. It wasn't enough To stay in the land, in this case, they had to go a three days' journey out of the land. Moses teaches this truth about worship to Pharaoh with a more relevant point still. The less relevant points found in verse twenty six. He points out that the Egyptians would find such animal sacrifices repulsive. In fact, in history we know of Egyptians punishing Israelites for exercising their sacrificial religion just like this. So it's not really a much lesser of a point, but it is a lesser point. Because verse 26 says, I believe they would kill us if we sacrificed like this in Egypt itself. We've got to get away. But Then verse 27, as I just pointed out to you, gives the greater reason why they must worship this way. Why must they worship this way? It's called God said so. It's because of us, saith the Lord. I wonder if you've thought about this. Th- just think, this, this is... Deep stuff, but think with me. Does God communicate to us by His Word how we, as New Covenant Christians, as the church, are supposed to worship? And if there's biblical data about how we're supposed to worship, do we have the right to alter how we worship? based on what we would prefer or what we think would work better. We don't, do we? Ignorance is not an excuse. We must seek the Scriptures and prepare our worship in a manner that reflects what God has prescribed. In Table Talk magazine, they wrote this earlier this year about this very passage. Moses' refusal to budge on the matter of when and where to worship tells us something about the importance of following the Lord's directions when it comes to our corporate worship gatherings to praise His name. Throughout church history, it has been all too common for Christians to think that we are free to worship according to our own whims and can tailor worship services to what is expedient with little regard for what God tells us is pleasing to Him. Moses certainly would have chosen to follow this route and obey Pharaoh's suggestion "'that the Israelites worship within the boundaries of Egypt, but he did not. "'He knew that the Lord determines how he is to be worshipped, "'and he would not give in to Pharaoh. "'Admittedly, it can be difficult at times "'to apply what the Lord has said about worship to our own setting, "'but the example of Moses shows us that we should think carefully about worship "'and strive to follow his instructions and not our own preferences, "'as some have found throughout history, "'to pay no regard to what the Lord has revealed in worship can be found deadly.'" And he cites Leviticus ten one to 3 4, that, for an example of that, just one example of that. He concludes, It is tempting to worship according to what we consider expedient or what we think will attract people to the church. We should not do this, however, but should strive to do only what pleases God in our corporate gatherings of praise. Let us encourage our church leaders to think carefully about worship and to seek biblical warrant for what we do when we gather. End quote. Exodus 8 is one installment among many in the Bible that our worship is to seek to be as He tells us. As He tells us. Nehemiah 9.6 says that worship is key to understanding the one God. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heavens, the heavens of heaven, heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. When we worship, when we worship as prescribed by God, when we come together, we are joining with the heavenly throngs in worshiping our God. When we sing the word and pray the word and preach the word and see the word, when we read the word, we are joining in heaven's worship. And I am so glad to get to do it with you every Sunday. It is such a wonderful privilege and encouragement to my soul to get to do it with you every Sunday. When the service leader comes up here and they've, pre- they've prepared something for you, to pray the word to you, man, I just, I just, it's hard for me to be judgmental about how it comes out because here's what I know. That man has prayed about what he's going to pray. He's read through what he's going to pray. He's made notations about what he's going to pray. Sometimes he's asked other brothers in the church, You think if we pray about this, that'll be helpful? How do we praise God in this way for this attribute? How do we confess this sin? It seems like this scripture is leading us that way. And then they come and they do that in service to us. And that's just one small facet. I could talk about the way that we get to a sermon. It's not just one man. I could talk about the way we get to songs. It's not just one one or two people. I could talk about the way we get here. And it's an achievement. And it's an achievement brought to us through the sheer mercy of Almighty God. Do you know that today? Can you praise Him for praising Him today. Isn't it good to us in that way? He is. He is. He's gifted us to serve. He's given us the body of Christ, but He wants us to consider the precision of His commands. Pharaoh's fine with their worship so long as it's done His way. This far, and no further. But tyrants never get to dictate the tenor of our worship. Neglecting the habit of meeting together is, a, is a, it's neglecting a clear command of God. It's not up for compromise. Even if we, like the early Christians, must go to the catacombs to meet. We must meet. We must worship God, God's way. There are brothers and sisters in the world today that are forbidden from gathering as Christians, as a church, and they have to meet in secret. And we ought to pray for them. We ought to pray for them often. We have not yet resisted to the point of the shedding of blood. I pray that, heaven forbid, that day comes in our lives that we will be found faithful. We must worship God's way, and we must meet to worship Pharaoh tells them, not very far away for their worship. God tells them, do it this way. Pharaoh says in what some of you kids know is a, a VSS, a very short sentence. He says in verse 28, three words, plead for me, plead for me, plead for me. And I'll say to you that the Bible says many will cry, Lord, Lord. But on that day, Matthew 7 says, Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. The Bible says... In Philippians, that on that day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God, the Father in heaven. But confessing on the day of judgment that that is the one true God is not the same thing as trusting in that one true God right now. As I implore all of you, I plead with you. Instead of pleading to me or anybody else in this church to pray for you, I plead with you today, if you are lost and undone without Christ, to pray to the God of heaven And ask for the salvation that's been freely offered to you. This is one thing you will not be able to do after you you pass over the waters from life to death. You will not be able to receive Christ. You must do it in this lifetime. Hear me, young people. You must receive Christ. He must be yours. And you should receive him because it's good. He's good. I've pled with you not once, not twice, not three, but four times today to receive the Lord, I think, by my count. But if it's three, if it's four, if it's five... Would this be the time that you would receive Christ? Would you receive him? Thus saith the Lord, receive Christ. To all who receive him, he gives the right to become his children. And what a glorious, glorious relationship that is. John chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, sums things up really well. The Jews were going after Jesus. Not really to learn from him, but to to trap him. They really weren't gathered for worship. They were gathered for self. If anything, they wanted a respite from their pains. They didn't want a relationship with this Savior. And they said, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, kind of reminds me of a three days journey, doesn't it, you? There's a bit of an echo there. In three days, I'll raise it up. Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? That he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And notice what their response was. Wasn't asked for another sign, although the apostles did signs throughout the first century, and they established churches and wrote down scripture. But their response was to believe the scripture that they had and the word that Jesus had spoken. And it should be yours as well. Express your faith by believing the scripture and the spoken word about who Christ is. Thus saith the Lord. Let's take a half a minute and think about our text and our sermon today.